Welcome to the JMS Podcast. My name is Jorge M. Sanchez, and thank you for tuning in. Listeners, we have a great guest today. It is comedian Greg G. Williams. I uh, had a great talk. He got very emotional at one point, and I just got to say, he is probably one of the nicest comedians I've ever met, and I'm really glad to, you know, haven't gotten in contact with him and to bring him on board to the JMS Podcast, and, and I think we had a great interview, or a conversation, I should say. Uh, Greg G. Williams, uh, I, 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 I mean, if he's listening to this, thank you so much for, for being on this podcast. Had a good talk, and, and I, I definitely learned a lot from it, and I sure hope my listeners uh, can learn something from it, because there's, there's a lot of good, uh, good heart into it. Uh, before we get there to that conversation, I need to remind you all to please, if you haven't already, to subscribe to this podcast. Uh, if you're listening on either iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher, subscribe, will ya? Just do me the favor and just press the button already. Also, please follow the JMS Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We have extra videos, we have extra footage, we have extra pictures, uh, you name it. So it's very worthwhile for you to, uh, to find this podcast on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Bada beam, bada boom. All right. Uh, oh, one more thing. That's right. Help me run this podcast still. Uh, help me. You can help me by donating to this podcast. If you go to the jmspodcast.com website, there's a donation button. Anything helps. And you could donate two, two ways. You could either uh, go to the GoFundMe page, in which, you know, you do a one-time donation. Or you could support this podcast by uh, by going to the Patreon account. Just go to Patreon, search JMS Podcast, and uh, if you subscribe and, and give give me a monthly uh, donation, that'll be awesome. Because trust me, uh, at this point, I could use all the help I can get uh, with the money. Uh, not only will we maintain the podcast on the internet with the hosting fees, but it is an investment to uh, get better equipment for the guest here you know eventually i want to get a full-on band and to get that i need to buy some equipment to get the best quality sound i can so yes check out jms podcast on gofundme or patreon do it come on what are you waiting for huh what do i have to do around here to 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 get some money oh man anyway on that note uh so get ready for my conversation with greg g williams Greg Williams, happy to have you here. Thank you, thank uh, you for having me. As I mentioned before, when you got here, I, I, I didn't realize you were coming from such a uh, such a far place. Fresno, right? Fresno. And you yes. moved there two years ago. Two over two and a half years ago now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, two and a half years ago. Where did you live before? So here in San Jose. I was here in San Jose from 2011 to 14. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. How was that transition from San Jose to Fresno? Uh, you know, not being around the comedy rooms that I were, you know, was in. There's no major comedy club there. Um, but it it didn't take me long. You know, I found rooms and 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 made it work. It's cheaper to live. <laughs> it's cheaper to live. My rent's three times less. Where we would be here in the Bay. Yeah. Yeah. 
I'm I'm always surprised when I get a like Fresno Comics coming to my mic open mic. Mm-hmm. Uh, lately, I've been having uh, David Mizizis. I can't pronounce his last name. Yeah, I'm butchering Mizzizi's, his last name. Yeah, yeah he's is that Modesto? He's Modesto. Oh, is that not the same from Fresno? That's oh, such a stupid hour question. Hour and a half away. See, for me, it'd be like saying me, here I, in Fairfield. You know, they're, they're right. so far away. Yeah. See, for me, <laughs> it's all Central Valley. Though. Yeah, but yeah. we we tend to just put just that all together. Put it all together. L.A. Yeah. Bakersfield. Nah, they're all. Bakersfield's like an hour and a half for me. Modesto's like an hour and yeah, hour and a half as well. Right in the middle. Yeah. So, so how's the comedy scene over there in Fresno? It's good. What it is is like there's no comedy, there's no improv, there's no you know laugh factory, nothing like that, punchline. But there are rooms. Everybody has a room, you know, whether it's a restaurant, a bar. Um, some guys do monthlies and in, in uh, little concert venues. We just did a, a winery. That outdoor winery where Kabir Singh, and you know he's one of the guys from the Bay, mm-hmm. uh, headline, and we had 500 people there, but we've had as many as a thousand people at this show out there. So there's there's comedy. Okay. There's, there's comedy. There's a room that's called Mother Mary's uh, there in Fresno, Clovis Fresno. There, it's so stupid. It's almost like Milpitas and San Jose. It's the same thing, but. Uh, there's a room mm-hmm. there that they do shows every Thursday, Friday, and Saturday that they have a, a back room that holds like 40 to 50 people and it's always packed. Thursday, mm-hmm. Talking Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. You know. Um, how, long ha- how long have you been in the, in the comedy game? Almost 10 years now. Wow. Almost 10 years. You're a years. veteran. Yeah. I don't know. It's funny. It's uh, I'm at the weird place to where... Oops. I'm at this weird place where I feel like a young pup still, but then... To have young guys like, oh man, you know, can you give me advice? So I'm in the middle, you know, I guess. How do you feel about giving advice to young comics? I don't mind as long as they receive it. A uh, quick story, a guy, I won't even mention his name. He's from here in the Bay. He's one of, a guy I've been knowing since I lived here when I was in the Bay, you know. So he's talking 2011. And he was kind of just getting started with comedy then. And there's times where I've seen him do stuff and I try to give him advice and it's in one ear and out the other because he's trying to get his set better and he's like oh this this is the example with this guy he's like oh you know he'll work out you know he'll throw out some jokes and then when it won't work he'll say well I'll just try these next five and then these next five and he never builds on his original five you know to mm-hmm. even give it a chance and I kept telling him dude you, the way you make it work you gotta bang it out it's practice everything is practice and he didn't want to listen. Ah, I got I got fifty two different sets. Are they working? No. Oh, I'm just gonna bang them out. And then now, see, talking that was like 2012. So when he when I try to give him that advice, and then we're in 2016, and he just hit me up the other day. He's like, "Man, you're right. I should have listened to you. <laughs> I should have listened to you." Yeah. And I was like, "Yeah, I know you should have listened to me, but you're hard headed. You know." As, and as another guy, I've seen a lot of young guys that do that. So if they are receptive, if you look at me as a vet and you want advice, then you have to take that advice because I've taken advice from vets. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? No matter how painful it is to hear, but it, they're, most of the time when vets give you advice, they're giving you advice to make you better, not to bring you down. If you hear negative advice like quit comedy or something like that, don't listen to that. But if, you oh, get, no. if they say, hey, your joke's going left, I would take it right this way. Then accept it. That's, uh, I don't get it. <laughs> uh, any any advice that you were given that, that really resonates with you? Stand out, be different. My mentor, when I first started, he said, "Stand out, be different." Which I know that's cliche to say that, but 
the way my act is, nobody can really copy it. And I mean, not like, uh, I guess material-wise, because it's, it's about me. It's not, and, and no knock to guys that do, uh, I guess we can curse on this thing, right? Yeah, uh, go for it. Fucking go for pussy, it. pussy, you know, the, the typical jokes, weed, pussy, uh, jerking off. I don't do any of that in my act. No, you'll never hear that out of my act. I don't do that. Not even when you started out? Nope. Interesting. Maybe one shit joke. One shit right. joke. One married. Hey, I'm, <laughs> I'm sitting on the toilet, you know, hacky. My wife busting in the door type thing. I yeah. did that one time. But not the masturbation. Not even talking about marriage. I don't even go there with no. as far as none of that. No. Okay. No. It, it, and so when you first started doing stand-up 10 mm-hmm. years ago, mm-hmm. uh, how did that come about? So, I started at age 37. I'm 40. I'm going to be 47 this year. Dude, you look young. I thought you were like in your 30s. Uh, nah. No bullshit. Like, I know. I get I get that a lot. Do uh, you? Uh, yeah. I, I, I do. do you take it like, yeah, or do you take it like, oh, God damn it? Like, no, I don't mind. I mean, hell, I don't, I, it's different, different than somebody saying, man, you look 67. You know what I'm saying? How many people you know look way older than what they are? So, I, no, nah, I embrace it. It's, it's one of those... I learned, like, in my late 20s, early 30s to start, you know, really taking care of myself. So, I don't, it's not like I'm Mr. Square and don't eat junk food and stuff like that. But I try to, like, take care of myself as best I can, you know. Uh, work out and stuff like that. I'm, I'm in the middle. More toward the healthy side, but I do drink. I do stuff like that. Um, but I was always a shy kid growing up, Super, which a lot of comics are introverted, right? And um, Are we? Most A lot of comics are introverted. When you're okay. around a lot of comics... People think, you know, it's that misconception. We're all, ha-ha, ba-boom, we're off stage. No, nah, most of the comments I talk to, they talk like we're talking now. You know, mm-hmm. just conversations, what's up with family, finances. It's not the, ha-ha, you know, like I said, turning cartwheels and stuff like that. No, we're not on all the time. Right. I hear you. I hear you. I, I feel when you're on stage, you put on that mask. You put on that. That is exactly. Uh, to, to perform. I, I tell people and, that and, all the time. And for me, there's not, nothing much sadder when a comedian still has that mask on when he's off stage. Because you can see it right through it. You can see like, okay, this yeah, guy. You're trying too hard. Too hard. You're trying too and hard. And it, it's coming off a bit disingenuous almost. I was with a comic the other day and... We're all sitting there. We're trying to, like, get our notes ready. And he had to, like, constantly tell us jokes, you know. <laughs> and you can tell it's, like, material he's trying to, like, you right. know, bang out with. It's like, take it on the stage. You should never test out jokes with the comics, really. If you know, if you got a premise, you're like, hey, dude, I want to try this. But if you're just, like, talking in conversation and you go, two cats walked in a bar. You know, that way, no, that doesn't work. But if you say, hey, dude, I got this premise. And you say it, and then we go, okay, we'll try this and go left and whatever. Then I don't mind that. But when you step up there and try to work material on me, that's that's the sign of a rookie comic to me. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. if somebody trying too hard and it's like, no, the stage. I was just telling the same guy I was giving advice to the other day, I said another problem comics have, in my, in my observation, is they try to be funny for their comic friends. You ever been to a show... And all their comic friends are in the back laughing and the audience is looking like, what's going on? Right. That's not our job to make your friends laugh. Your job is to make that crowd laugh. Because when you move, if you go to a show in Minnesota, are your friends in Minnesota? No. You got a Minnesota crowd that's like, hey, make us laugh. So I see a lot of comics, and I won't even mention the area, but it's it's an area here in the Bay. (laughs) 
uh, the, those comics yeah. I seem to observe do that a lot they're more worried about their friends and they stay in this area uh, and don't venture outside of that area because yeah they're going to maybe have crowds laughing but they're more so worried about their friends so when I see these comics go in other areas I've seen these comics in LA uh, even Fresno and all that they they, they don't do as well because hmm. the crowd is your is our litmus test am I, am I right you know what I'm right, saying yeah completely right man I, I just I don't yeah I, I may want my comic friends to laugh and it's a challenge to do that but you're not gonna grow as a comic to me if you're just trying to make your friends laugh you mm. you came in at 37 37 stand up and you already have life experience behind you mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. I think could have helped you develop, oh, it helps me develop huh? a better unique set it does I've had a lot of younger comics tell me hey man it's cool that you you know you've been through stuff like I've uh, been in the army been homeless now I'm a nurse you know just little things been married before you know divorced yeah. kids all of that stuff that yeah that's what makes my act unique and that's why I told you my mentor said dude just the fact that I work in the hospital there's a ton of material in there like that people can't touch because they don't work in a hospital like that most most comics don't you know so they don't see pain and and at least mortality the same way you would right or just what I go through I got a friend that's a, a pharmacist that um, he's been doing comedy twice as long as me and he's been on TV and stuff like that and he told me um, best advice is that take whatever pisses you off at work and then put it on stage because that's where it works for him and that's where it works for me mm. uh, yeah and you make people feel that you just touched interesting stuff about your life that I didn't even know about mm-hmm. so let's take this from the beginning alright <laughs> okay. Greg uh, w- where did you grow up so I grew up okay because I tell a lot of people this it's like a jump I jumped around so I was born in Roanoke Virginia right Roanoke Virginia Roanoke Virginia pretty so famous place right <laughs> yeah, yeah absolutely like, like, like a town disappeared there one, t- one time like a what like a town, like a colony disappeared. You thinking on the? You thinking Roanoke Rapids? So you thinking oh. on the east part of? Dude, Virginia, like the coast. So Roanoke, Virginia, is on the west part of Virginia. I'm so in dumb. The mountains. I am so dumb. No, no, no. First, I messed you, up Modesto. First, I messed up Modesto and Fresno. No, I'm yeah. not messing up Roanoke, Virginia. Carolina. But you know, it's close though. You were close. You uh, do. You do. Yeah, we learned that was. You yeah. know, it's funny. That was like almost. Um, not like a ghost story, but that story was kind of spooked us out as kids when we learned about that in school, you know? Yeah. That these cats show up and they disappear and all that's left is writing or etchings right. on trees. Right. That was that was kind of scary. Like, well, what happened to these people, you know? Um, Interesting. But, but, you know, Roanoke is on the west part. It's like in the mountains of uh, Virginia. So I moved from there to North Carolina where I grew up when I was about three. So I, I call Carolina home, North Carolina home. Where in North Carolina? Really? So Fayetteville, North Carolina. It's um, most people know it by Fort Bragg, the big army base there, and um, you know, grew up there. Um, you know, from like I said, three to uh, to seventeen when I went in the army. So graduated high school at sixteen. How many siblings did you have? So I have three. Um, but what it was my parents? I'm their only. So I'm my parents' only kid. Uh, natural kid, you know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. Or 
Like, I'm my mom and my dad's only so, kid together. So you have half-brothers and half-sisters. Yes. So my mom remarried, had another son, and my dad remarried and had another uh, boy and girl. So you're the oldest? I'm the oldest by 10 years. Yeah. Oh, man. Pressure or no pressure there when growing up? I grew up, up with, ten, well, my 10-year-old brother from my mom's remarried, so it was like I took care of him. I took care of him, like, from when he was a baby. I was changing his diapers and stuff like that. My mom was kind of uh, a party girl. Oh, yeah? Still. So she would go out every Friday and Saturday night, and I would be stuck at home with my brother. What line of work was she doing? Uh, seamstress. Worked in sewing, you know, sewing shops and stuff like that. Okay. So and on the weekend, she would party it up? She would party it up, and I'd and, and be stuck in the house with my brother. That must have annoyed you. Yeah. You know, I was you know, kid. I mean, it's my brother. I loved him, but, um, you know, I'm going to be changing <laughs> shitty diapers at right. freaking 2 in the morning, you know? So, uh, yeah. But but already at a young age, you had a sense of how to take care of someone. Yeah, I was, you know, it made me a natural. I always liked kids. Like, growing up, I knew that some way I would work with kids. So, I translate to the job I do now as a nurse. But, um, yeah, it was one of those, I just always was kind of natural with kids. And um, just like playing with kids, you know. Okay. Yeah. And how about your father? What line of work was he in? So, my dad uh, was in the Army, got out of Vietnam. And uh, joined a fertilizing company where they, you know, um, you know, sold bags of, and uh, you know, fertilizer, all kind of lo- uh, landscaping products. And so he ended up retiring after forty some years with that company as a supervisor. So it seems that like you're coming from a blue collar for sure, a blue collar background. Yeah, yeah. And it, yeah. and from a young age, was there already a sense of? performance in you like you want oh no that's what i said super introverted super shy i was like uh super self-conscious because i was super skinny had these big i wear glasses but i have contacts on now of course but i wear you know big thick prescriptions skinny uh unsure of myself teeth were you know jacked up so you can imagine a kid like that just you know, I just stayed in the shell, so I was very, oh, very self-conscious and just, yeah, the, the shy kid in the corner. <laughs> How was your school experience? School was okay. I mean, you know, it, it becomes all about, you know, girls and all that, so girls didn't come near me. Like, I had, I always tell people this, <laughs> and they don't believe me. I had yeah. one girlfriend ever in high school. So you're talking from, you know, as a kid, or whatever elementary or whatever to high school I had one girlfriend in high school for two weeks where I think she just took pity on me and we all we did was hold hands going from class to class and then after two weeks she's like yeah I'm over it oh no <laughs> uh, uh yeah girls weren't paying attention to me back then not even close alright and then after high school you decided to go to the army yeah so I graduated at 16 and then um um well, you graduated pretty early. Yeah, I didn't want to. Um, I didn't want to go and I didn't want to go to college right away. You know, especially with black families. You know, a lot of the generations before I didn't go to college, so it was like try for college, try for college. I wasn't ready. I just knew mentally I wasn't ready. So, um, I waited about a year. I was working in a little grocery store as a bag boy, and then went to yeah, decided to sign up for the army because one of my best friends we were supposed to go in under the buddy program. So what you would do with the buddy program. You go in and you both will always for the rest of your careers go to the same bases, you know, no matter whatever different jobs you have. 
and he chickened out. And then I went oh, in. Oh, no. He chickened out. I went in. Then the fool went in six months later. I was so pissed off, you know. Wait, did he chicken out? Like, he chickened out basic no, or I, before no, basic? Chicken, no, before. He didn't even sign up. Oh. So when it came down to the last day of signing, I'm like, okay, let's do it. And he's like, oh, no, man. And he backed out. And he waited six months. And I planned it so that when I went to basic training, it would be summertime. Or spring going into summer, right? And then by the time that food went in, it was wintertime. And he ended up in Fort Drum, New York. So, you know, New York's freezing. So you're out there on the ground. You know, in basic, you're always outside, you know, training, you mm-hmm. know, for two months. And so, no, I planned it. I was like, if I'm going to train, I'm going to do it in the spring slash summer where it's warm. I'm not going to be laying outside on some cold-ass ground in, you know, zero-degree weather. So that's what his ass gets, you know. Uh, what do you train at? So I trained in uh, South Carolina at uh, Fort Jackson. That's where I did basic. And then I did AIT. AIT is advanced individual training. That's where you go learn your job. So if you're going to be whatever, nurse, whatever, uh, medic. So I I was a communications guy. So I worked with radios. And um, basically my job was like when we went in the field, and set up field operations so you run wires and telephone lines and set up radios oh man so I was a communications guy so you must have been hauling quite a bit of equipment with you a lot of equipment and then we had to do what's called bird dog and wire so like now you know everything cell phones and you know stuff like that and then we had radios then but for one like we set up a, a base camp there's like the headquarters and then like you know half mile whatever down the road there's another tent another mile tent this way we had to literally take a big spool of wire and run it from place to place oh man in the woods <laughs> you know no matter the degrees no matter the rain just dragging this big piece big of wire with wire. you yeah, so yeah it's on the back of a truck and a spool but you had to be on the ground like pulling it along okay string it this way and then you had to make sure it was so the enemy can't see even though we're playing pretend training you had to make sure the enemy so sometimes what they would do is cut the damn wire and we would have to go out there and, and what they call bird down the line so we'd have to go down the line looking for where the hell they cut the wire just because they they did that which is so stupid it's like well if the enemy really wanted to take us out that's one way just to ooh let's cut this wire and they can't talk mm-hmm. uh, yeah so set up radios and stuff like that so that's what I did and then Right before I got out in ninety, so I went in from eighty eight to ninety two. Right before I got out, like the last two years, they came out with an actual like cell phone. It was big, it's a big ass phone, but it was like a cell phone that you could just talk to, you know, whatever. And your your time in the army, you weren't actually ever shipped out. Came close. So uh, when they had the first, you know, uh, I guess Desert Storm was the first one. Right. Bill Clinton was in. They um the Gulf War yeah the Gulf War so they we did everything we were on a plane literally about to fly in the air and they stopped us and said we don't need you yeah so was, it was like a one week war that, yeah that, they took out the the Iraqi army right. pretty fast hundred days yeah and <laughs> that yeah um you know so I don't want to go there but the way they stretched the one the the last one it's like really dude you have to stretch it out that far but um. Yeah, came close. So, was you know he cried. And you had to write. You had to write a uh, uh, what do you call it? like a will and testament and all this stuff. And you had to write a. See, you had to write a letter. How is that transition, going from Roanoke, Virginia, to mm-hmm. not being in the army? 
Was that? What do you mean, North Carolina? North Carolina. I, oh, because I, I don't. I keep fucking it up. Yeah, I'm sorry. Sorry. Going, <laughs> going from North Carolina, mm-hmm. you know, straight out of high school, going into the army, and uh, already from a young age, you, you had a sense of responsibility when you take care of your brother. Yeah. But now in the army, they what they really teach you is the responsibility to take care of your fellow. Tell s- your soldiers. fellow soldier and to be accountable and and uh, respectful and I don't know. I'm a quick learner. In most aspects to where if I see you doing something right, okay, I'm going to try to do right. And if I see you doing something wrong, I'm not going to do that. Because we saw guys coming there with smart, you know, attitudes that would get smoked. That Meaning, you know, you see, you know, on TV, the whole do 50 push-ups and stuff like that. Guys who got smart or, you know, didn't want to do it, they were getting so many push-ups, their arms were locking up, you know. So I figured out a long time ago, okay, let me listen and you know, just do what you're supposed to do. I mean, that whole I'm going to buck the system stuff, that don't work in the Army. You know, they can they can do whatever they want to. If a guy tells you, hey, I need you to dig a hole right here in the middle of the street, then you're supposed to do it. That's, you know, that's how the Army works. So, yeah, that's kind of why I got out because it's that stupid at times. But, um, nah, <laughs> I wasn't trying to do a million. Once in a while, they had you digging holes in the middle of the road? Uh, not that extreme. It's It's like... Sometimes I would see higher ups abuse their power. That's what it is. It happens. Yeah. So it when happens. you abuse your power, um, like an example, on the weekends when we'd be off, you know, we work hard, we're protecting this country, and to have a, we had a captain who would, who was married, had a house and stuff like that, and he would come bother us in the dorms, in the barracks, same thing, on the weekends. We're relaxing. I remember one night. One day we're relaxing in our rooms, watching TV. We got beer and pizza, and we're relaxing. And, you know, there's pizza boxes on the ground. We're all teenagers, you know, 18, 19-year-olds. And he bust up in there, you know, clean your, you need, y'all need to clean this room. And what's going on? And he would do that. He would come around the barracks. He was just obsessed with it. And we were always like, dude, go home to your wife, you know? Yeah. You work all week and you want to stay around us? Like, it's the weekend, dude. That's what we do, Relax. You know, we couldn't have girls in the barracks. We got caught with girls in the barracks and stuff like that, you know. Um, you know, to me, it's like if we're, you know, putting our lives on the line, essentially, with, you know, the military, you know, really, pizza boxes on the floor on the weekend, we're off, That that's not a big deal, you know. Yeah. I would never be that type of person, you know. Um, How far up the ranks did you get to? So I made it to E4 which is a specialist, you know, so of course it's E1, E2, E3, E4. So I made it to E4 as a specialist. And I was, to become a sergeant, you know, you always hear, you know, which is E5, you had to take a test. You had to get in front of a committee where they ask you questions. um, And then you're earning points along the way too. So you're building up points. You got to sit in front of the committee. Um... And, and like I say, take a test. And so I'd always take the written test and do well. But when I get in front of the committee, I would kind of tense up. But, you know, I always show leadership skills to where, you know, it was like, why is Williams not <laughs> a sergeant by now? So, you know, it becomes political also if some people don't like you. No matter how good you do, then they'll still hold you back, mm-hmm. you know. So I think, because I went twice for a sergeant's exam and didn't make it, you know, people were shocked because, see, you have to also take this course that's called 
PLDC, and basically, I forgot what that acronym, what that stands for, but it's basically a training course that you go to for two months to where you learn to be a leader, right? So there's a hundred of us in this thing, and at the end of it, at the graduation, they would, you know, you graduate on your own, whatever, however, but at the end, they would award this thing that they called Platoon Guy, and that was the best trainee in this training program, right? Mm-hmm. So during the whole thing, you had this guy that, you know, he just, he was just kind of gunning for it. You know how somebody just tries too hard, and they yeah. just like, I'm the leader, <laughs> Right, and uh, me, it's one of those, uh, like I said, I learned quick, you know, this is probably right, and this is probably not the wrong thing to do, and I would have cats gravitate more toward me, and me and this guy were kind of competing, and so by the time we graduated, uh, he got it, and I came in second, whereas everybody was like, what the fuck, why is Williams not (laughs) a platoon guy? So, this guy was white. I was black. You can look at it however you want, you know. Oh, uh, you felt like that was a deciding factor? I, I'll tell you what. I didn't even... I Of course, I looked at that, but... And this is a mixture of, you know, white, black, Latino in this thing. If, if you got... Because it was 100 of us in this thing, and then each grouping had 30 guys in each, whatever, 30-some guys. If you got all... This, you know, me and this guy going against each other, and the other twenty eight saying, "Why is Williams not platoon guy instead of this guy?" Then, you know, what's what's the difference? What stands out? Yeah. So uh, it's one of those I just kind of look at it like, yeah, that should have been me, but I didn't sweat over it or fuss over it when I uh, went back to my unit, the sergeant major. So I don't know for people who don't really know how the military works. The sergeant major is kind of like. If you work for a grocery store and you got a manager, then you got a district manager that's over all these grocery stores, you know, five or ten grocery stores. So I would go see the sergeant major, and I went and sat with him, and he heard about everything and went, and he was like, you know, basically, dude, I I followed your progress, and he said, you should have fucking got platoon guy. He said, you blew this guy away without being a kiss ass, and he said, I just want to... You know, he said, this may not mean a hill of beans to you, but you're my platoon guy. And, you know, that that, that made it, because it wasn't like he got money or anything like that, but it was a cool trophy and a plaque that, that they gave out that I thought I was going to get. Yeah. I didn't get. So. But, but it looked like your fellow men recognized you and, and your leadership. Yeah, they did. And that, that almost means more. Uh, but uh, do you feel like there's a bit of disillusionment after that event? What do you mean? In a sense, like, oh, well, this guy, who obviously does not deserve it, gets it. So it's like, your your efforts, or, or or this is no longer about merit anymore. It's like you mentioned before, now it becomes political. Well, you know, it's just kind of life. Life ain't fair, you know. Um, yeah, I was, I was pissed off behind it, you know, to where I worked my ass off uh, to get it, but... I just couldn't dwell on it, you know, like, um, that, sorry, it would have been a cool thing to have, but, um, it's one of those, I look at it with that guy, you know, like, the way he really kind of kissed butt or he overdid it, he's going to be like that his whole career. If you're not a natural leader, then it just, you're not going to get respect from the guy. So respect, and I tell this to people, kids that I mentor, I'd rather be respected than liked. 
any day. I'd rather people respect me than like you. Because they can like you, but they're going to say, oh, man, uh, Jorge, you know, I like him. He's a nice guy, but he's a shitty worker or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Or he's shitty in geography, obviously. Right. Um, whereas, okay, I don't like this guy, but you know what? I, I want to work with him because he's a great worker and I can't fuck with him. <laughs> right. That that's how I see it, you know, with with that. So, you know, those those guys respected me to where, you know, they kind of liked him, but they didn't respect him because they saw how he was. Right. You know? But yeah. Yeah, hey, man. So then, how soon after did you got out of the army? So I did five years, so eighty eight to ninety two. And I know when people look at it like, well, that's not really five years but it is because I started at the beginning of 88 and got out like toward the end of 92 so that's technically you know like right five years so I got out in 92 I was married then I met uh, my then wife uh, when I was like 19 you know young but um, I was pretty sure I wanted to be married I know that sounds funny but uh, we got married and I had to go right to Korea my last so we had just got married and like couple months later I had to go to doggone Korea for a year and you can't take your wife with you Korea is what they call a hardship tour because it's only a year and it's in a country Korea where you can't take your wife unless you're an officer okay were you stationed in, in Okinawa or the DMZ Korea so you're talking Okinawa is uh, oh, Japan I'm <laughs> you are bad with geography man damn we need to pull up a map on the computer <laughs> so when I point when I point somewhere out you know uh, Korea, got it. Yeah, so Korea. <laughs> then, um, hey, this is just as awkward for me as it is for you. <laughs> yeah. I usually, I'm usually spot on my geography. Yeah. I don't know what it is today. I'm like <laughs> off. But anyway, you're stationed in Korea. Stationed in Korea for yeah, a and year, and then married, and it was tough because my, you know, wife at the time then when she was, she was, she is uh, three years older than me. It was just tough and distance, man. Distance, yeah, and you know, she was crying all the time, and this is when, and and. You know, we had to limit our phone calls because a freaking twenty-minute phone call from Korea <clears throat> would end up being like over a hundred bucks. Holy shit! Yeah, so sometimes she would call me and we talk for hours, Good. hours, and a freaking phone bill. And you know, this is then when she called, we had to put it on a card. I'd look up end of the month some phone bill, six hundred bucks. I was like, babe, you gotta, we gotta write letters, or we gotta keep this phone call short. But she'd be on the phone most of the time, crying, and I miss you. And, the the unit I, I ended up in was co-ed, which made it worse. Oh no! So we had a, a public hallway phone. So anytime the phone rang, you know whoever was heard it would go answer, and then they'd scream out, you know, Smith Williams telephone, you know that type of thing. So I always hated it when my wife would call and a woman would answer the phone, <laughs> you know, because she didn't get it. Why is a woman always answering your phone? I'm like you know, I have to explain to us a hallway phone, blah blah blah. I even send you pictures. And, uh, yeah, those were the worst calls because I knew I was going to be on the phone over an hour, (laughs) you know, trying to explain that to her. Um, So, yeah, that was Korea. Did that for a year um, and then got out from Korea. Um, Yeah, I got out from Korea and uh, went to – so I met my wife in Louisiana where I was stationed at. Moved to Louisiana. Uh, My plan was to go to nursing school you know right out of the army but um my ex-wife was so eager to have a kid at looking back now it's like really she's like because louisiana small town 
you know, that's all the women do. You know, she, she get a, married. You know, it's all about getting married, having kids. You know, traditional oh, values. Oh my God, you're 26 year old. You know, you're old maid. You know, whereas at the time she's only freaking you're talking 24, and she's like, oh my God, all my friends are having kids, and you know, I'm like, let's just wait. Let me go to school. Let me, you know. And he'll have a kid, and she got off those pills, and next thing you know, you know. Mm. Oh, uh, no. Yeah, we did, got Did she at least tell you that she was off the pills? It's one of those, oh, I forgot to take one, you know. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that type of thing. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's like, okay, but. By the way, how did you meet her? I, I don't think we got around to that. So, um. If you mind me asking. No, no, no. A club we used to go to in, uh, in Louisiana um, that was about. So you probably you've heard of LSU and Baton Rouge, right? Uh, club was about mm, place about thirty minutes from there, and what was cool was uh, Shaquille O'Neal used to come in that club all the time. But it was like this little hole in the wall place that was always rocking. To where when Shaq came in the door, he'd always have to bend his head down to come in the door. That's how small the place was. Oh man! And girls would come, you know, just. Whoop, Shaq, because uh, he was, you know, the man in college. Um, right. So he's this would be cool. He used to be in there all the time. He used to be jamming with Shaq, you know. And um, I met her there. Saw her. It's one of those that uh, you know the whole thing about meeting a girl in the club. But she was out. She really wasn't a party girl. She was just out with her girls one night. And um, I mean, I guess you didn't have to compete with Shaq. No, I had to compete with Shaq. She was kind of like oh, he's ugly. She thought Shaq was ugly, you know. <laughs> Maybe she was just saying that to play it off of me. But, uh, you know, all the women that surround me knew he was going to get money. You know, it was one of those, he was killing it in college. So it was just in, inevitable that he was going to go to, you know, go to the pros. Um, uh, so, yeah, we met there, you know, fell in love, got married like a year or so later. Um, and, you know, to get married that young, I was, like I said, 19 going on 20. My friends were like, what are you doing? And, um, I was just kind of ready for it, you know, because I was starting to, once I got in the army, I started putting on weight, you know, started looking better. And then to have a woman and my wife, my ex-wife is beautiful to have her, you know, like me. I was like, wow, you know, and, and then like me for me and this and that. So I was, I was happy. I didn't need to keep running the streets, you know? Right. Um, and we had our problems. We ended up divorcing, of course. And, um, and, and you you had a child before the divorce, right? We had a child, yeah. We had a child, son, and my son's uh, twenty three. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, so he's with his mom. Mm-hmm. Back in Louisiana. In Louisiana. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. He's in Louisiana. So so going back to that is mm-hmm. is you got out of Korea, mm-hmm. and you go back, and she wants to have a family, and you just end up having a family. What mm-hmm. line of work did you get yourself? Because did you still go to school? I eventually did, but as so much that went on after that. So I ended up working in a convenience store, like a, a Chevron store that um, my wife, ex-wife's friend was the manager of. So, you know, gas station, they actually served food there too, which was real good. They had this, uh, uh, this compressor, this uh, fire compressor thing that when you put it in there, you locked it in and the... the you know the, the grease and all that just was compressed into the food but the batter and stuff they used people would come there for lunchtime. the place would be packed yeah it's country town that's you know kind of what they do and it was yeah you got a lot of travelers too right a lot of travelers it. people passing through so, interesting yeah. characters I'm sure but what was funny was the money I made from that store paid for our our rent 
And I paid all the bills with that. Wait. Living in an apartment at this grocery store. I mean, at this convenience store. Yeah. I mean, now people might think it's strange, but it makes total sense if the uh, the, the value of living is reasonable with the jobs, yeah. right? Yeah, in Louisiana, it was, it's cheaper to live down there. But for what he paid us, yeah, it was enough to where... And my ex-wife worked uh, as a, she worked at a Fruit of the Loom. You know, she was a seamstress too. And oh, like uh, like your mother. Just like my mom. Yeah, just ironic that that happened. Um, <laughs> or coincidence. And so, um, yeah, that's what she did. And we, you know, I paid the bills with. Uh, we had two cars and and stuff like that. And I just told her if she had just been patient, let me get through school. You know, because having a kid is tough. But you know, she just was gun ho about it, and so. Uh, we ended up going through problems, not even because of the kid. Mike's wife was bipolar. Like it was, it got pretty bad to where she, you know, tried to kill me. She held knives to my head. Her oh my neck, god! Um, oh my god! How, how destroyed stuff? All of now you said bipolar. Is this something that happened like once a month, or is this something that you know that happened every now and then in the year? I mean, it was one of those. She did a good job. People ask me all the time, did you see it? I mean, you dated for like a year. It just kind of progressively got worse. And then at, I'm talking, this is, you know, early 90s. Uh, and we're young. They learn about bipolar. You know, like now everything you see is bipolar and DID. And, you know, it's more right. prevalent now. Where yeah. back then, you know, at that age, I didn't know really. But, you know, yeah, uh, yeah it was. It got pretty bad. Where you, you just assumed that the other person had temper. Temper, yeah. just crazy. You know how he's called. Oh, she's just crazy. She just snaps like that. Cause she would. It'd be the nice. She'd be the nicest person one day, and the next day, she just a knife up to your neck. Yeah, yeah. Knife to my throat. She threw hot boiling water on me. She would. You know, I always. I ended up learning like don't stand near her in the kitchen. Um, so there came a point where you're like, all right, this needs to I stop. Had to go. Yeah, it was. It came down to a point where, um, I ended up wanting us to move to North Carolina so I could work for my best friend and then go to school. She didn't want me to. I went and checked on the job. When I came home, she had destroyed everything of mine in the house. Like, threw away clothes, smashed TVs, radios, uh, threw away. My grandfather was the first black cop in the state of Virginia. Mm -hmm. The first. Mm. So it was all white guys, and they're like, okay, we're going to experiment or whatever or make black people happy and we're going to bring in a cop my grandfather was the first one so um i had a lot of his memorabilia because he died in uh 87 and um she threw all that stuff away i'm so sorry to hear that yeah that must have been tough so you can throw away my clothes my tv my music but my grandfather's stuff you can't replace you know uh so i knew i need to leave because it was one of those i was going to kill her <laughs> you know <laughs> Cause you do that, yeah. I remember calling my mom. I was like, "Mom, she threw away granddaddy stuff," and she was like, "Leave, just leave the house. Just go get a hotel." She knew. She knew. I'm. I. I can take a lot. I'm one of those people. I can take a lot. But she knew because my grandfather was like my father. You know, he was my hero, and so she knew. She just begged me, Greg, just leave. Cause my my ex wife was gone when I came back home. But and she was like, "Just leave. Go get a hotel." Cause she knew I was gonna kill her, you know. Or my, you know, how mad I was. Um, left, went back home to my mom's in Carolina for. Cause my wife was pregnant then, when all this went on too. By the way, and with the first or second child? 
You only had one. I only had one. Her and yeah. I only had one. So um, I go back to Carolina. Um, my sister-in-law calls me. She's like, my ex-wife didn't even call me. She's like, you know, your son's born. Um, and then I talked to my wife at the time. She was like, I said, well, I want to come down and see my son, you know. And she's like, whatever. I didn't really want to tell you. And, you know, she was mad because I left. I'm like, do you know why I left? Did you, did you see what you did? And so I went back and she begged me to, you know, let's try to make it work. You know, we have a son and, you know, we're married. And I gave in and I moved back. And it only lasted six months. She would, and it was one of those, in that six months, you know, we'd argue and she would, you know, throw stuff. And I'd, the scene would always be, she would snap, yelling and screaming. I would go sit out on the porch. The neighbors would call the cops. They would come up. And a lot of times it was 2 in the morning. So they'd come there. I'd be sitting outside in my shorts or my pajamas. What's up, Greg? What's going on? I'm like, oh, Selena's doing her thing again. They're like, okay, can you keep it down? And then they leave, you know. <laughs> and that would be the scene once a week. I'd be out on the porch and they'd show up. But they, small town, they knew her, so they knew how she was. But this isn't a time where um, I always avoided all the arguments because it was always automatically the man would go to jail if there was an altercation. Right. Like now, they look at it, okay, who hit first? But back then, no matter who did it first or whatever swung first, the man always went to jail. So I wasn't trying to go to jail, you know. And good thing they knew her, you know, in this little small town. Um, and so I ended up leaving again. And she tried to, like, bleach my clothes and uh, stuff like that. So I left, moved back to Carolina, and, you know, just tried to get on with my life. Yeah. How was that, man? You kind of had to start from scratch. square one. I did, because I moved away with, yeah, I moved down there, back down there with little clothes and little stuff. And, um... Yeah, then I had to move back to my mom's and I ended up living with my best friends uh, back in Carolina. But um, I don't know. I, I had a plan. I was like, okay, <clears throat> school and all that didn't work down here. So I'll go back to Carolina and figure out some way, somehow, to get in school up there. And I knew that I would acquire everything, of course, except my grandfather's stuff back again. So I decided, I made a plan and um, took some, um, you know, some little, what do you call it, uh, uh, preparatory classes or whatever to get into the school that I ended up going to. It's it's interesting how you've chosen school as a starting point to start new or to start again. Well, I knew that, um, yeah, I could have kept working in a grocery store or something like that, but I knew I wanted to do nursing. I knew um, that if I made it as a nurse, I'd have a pretty comfortable lifestyle. You know, so I knew I'd be doing a job that I like in the medical field, and I knew that I would have a comfortable lifestyle. Okay. Mm -hmm. And 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 then, at what age did you get into school? So, you know, after taking all these little preparatory classes, it was about age twenty-five. You know, by the time I got in nursing school, and then um, graduated at like age twenty-eight. You know, it's one of those. If I had went into nursing school straight out of high school I probably would have been a nurse since 19 you know yeah instead because I just I got a, an associates so I kind of look back now like dumbass I should have just went <laughs> straight to nursing school you know could have had a you know different life but I wouldn't have my son you know but um 
uh, yeah, so I didn't graduate till age 28 and, uh, you know, found the job that I wanted. Because I got hired because I'm a, a NICU nurse. Um, a, got, what, a what nurse? A uh, NICU nurse. So neonatal ICU. So I work with premature babies. Fascinating. Okay. Uh-huh. And so um, our last six, seven months of school, they recommended that we, you know, start applying for jobs. And... You know, it's huge pressure to not even be graduate. You know, to graduate, even though six months out. I mean, come on, if you're not ready to graduate by that time, you just don't need to be in school. So, um, I got hired in you're talking January, uh, and we were graduating that May. In that May, so I got hired five months before I even graduated. So I was the first one in my class to get hired for the NICU because they were starting a new grad program. And, uh, yeah, got hired for that, graduated, passed my boards, and then I started work, like, in July, you know, two, of uh, 1998. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. pretty interesting field there. Yeah, it uh, is. It's, it's, especially when someone's born, it's delicate. Life is delicate. Very delicate. And not even more when they're born prematurely. Mm-hmm. It's quite a bit of responsibility. How, how, did, how did you handle it? You know, um, it's it's a people ask us or people say all the time, you know, I couldn't work with these kids because I would just be crying and just a mess and all that. But it's we're a necessary evil, which we're not doing evil; we're doing good. But you know, that's the term everybody uses. Like, we have to be strong in this job to make you know make sure these kids survive. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I think the evil possibly they're referring to is to be desensitized. To be a sense of, of like, okay, to be g- got to move on. Yeah, I, I got to do what I got to do. Right, and and at times we might seem callous, you know, to to the outsider, but we have to do that, and we care. I mean, no. if we didn't care, we didn't work as hard. Right. I, I mean, like my friend, my one of my best friends, he's a paramedic mm-hmm. uh, from Italy. He he's here. He's trying to get into be a doctor here. But but there's times where I was like, oh my god, like I would not do the stuff that he does, mm-hmm. and he does it, and he does it like. Let's do it. Like science, you right. know? Let me pick a leg off the ground or whatever. Yeah, I couldn't. Now, see, I couldn't do that. I couldn't. I couldn't just. I heard about the other day with some motorcycle accident. The guy's leg is over here and his arm's over there. And they had to pick all that up and put it on the ground. I couldn't do that. Right. I would I would freak the hell out. But um, same thing how people feel with my job. There's a lot of nurses that can't. Oh, no, Nikki, I can never do that. But, nah, I've been at it 18 years. And it's been, it's been you know, overly rewarding. Um. Yeah, overly rewarding to where you know when you you see more good than bad. So when you see these kids, you know, born early or go through problems, and they you know you see them go home to their family, that's the reward. Well, it, prove me if I'm wrong, but a common reason why there's premature uh, birth is because mm. of drug use. Not true. Um, it does happen because of that. What What happens is a mom who's doing not weed, but say meth or cocaine or crack, even crack, which is funny, like crack is not even the, the drug now. It's meth. Everybody's doing meth. But when you see moms doing those things besides weed, then what happens, their placenta usually abrupts. It causes the placenta to detach and they bleed. They start bleeding, so they got to get the kid out, mm-hmm. whether vaginally or C-section. So you see it with that, but actually, no, like, you see a lot of moms who they had their birth plan that oh I'm gonna have this big fat baby, 
the body just does what it wants to do and they just, uh, everything just starts opening up and that kid comes out really mm-hmm. so it's, it's really more of a mystery then of, of why a baby will be premature yeah somewhat I mean it's just kind of the body saying I don't want to hold on to it no more you know basically so we, we see that a lot to where uh, a mom who's been healthy doing everything she's supposed to taking the vitamins everything 100% and her body still says no so uh, yeah that's what happens mm-hmm. fascinating mm-hmm. and all this was still in Carolina or no yeah so graduated so I went to uh, actually I went to University of North Carolina for a year and then transferred to a nursing school called Sand Hills uh, and ended up graduating from there and so uh, which was like two and a half hours from where I lived in Fayetteville. And then I got a job in Fayetteville at the hospital in my hometown and worked on the NICU there and um, was there for four years. So what it was, they had a new grad program, like I said, that they usually don't do that. They usually take nurses with experience. But they wanted this, their mindset was, let's bring in these nurses who don't know crap about anything and let's teach them our way. Mm. You Interesting. Know? So that's what they did and... <laughs> um, yeah, it's funny. I have so many stories with that. That was worse than basic training. So I went. Th- that was How's worse that? than basic training. Okay, here's the story. Uh, so when I started, there were ten of us new grads. So I'm the only guy. There's three black people, seven white girls. Right. They assign you. So we did classroom. We, we were in a classroom where they taught us this is what a premature baby is, this is what this machine is. We did that for weeks, right? Just in class, learning everything and taking tests. Mm, excuse me. Right? And then they started cutting back on the classes and started weaning us to the floor to train. And everybody got assigned a preceptor to, you know, train you on the floor. Well, this is the South. And I, it's funny when I always say the South. People are like, L.A.? Like, no. Like, the South. Southern, you know. Right. Bible Belt. Right? Gotcha. Uh, and you're talking, this is 1998 now. This is ni- 1958. 1998. Right? Uh, I'm the first black male to ever work on that unit. In history of that In establishment? History, yes. Okay. In the NICU. First black male. They've had black people. There's black women there. But first black male. So I already got two things against me being in the Bible Belt in the South stuff like that so I got treated way differently than the other ladies way different as you can imagine so it was a matter of they were harder on me they were less patient with me they were it was overheard by people that their goal was and this may theme this theme may apply to our president we have now their goal was to make sure I failed on the unit. Somebody actually overheard them say, we are going to get him kicked off this floor. Holy shit. You know, so you can imagine the pressure that, you know, I felt when somebody came to me and, you know, in confidence. I was like, Greg, do what you got to do. Stick it out. They want you to fail on this floor. Why? Am I an asshole? Am I... They don't know me from Adam, you know? So what do you got to attribute it to? And I heard some women say, oh, I work, you know, I got a husband at home. I don't want to be around a man all day. 
Reverse sexism, right? Holy I heard, shit. I've heard that. <laughs> no. Right? Can you imagine that? Like, if a guy said that, uh, oh, man, I don't want to be around women all day. I got a wife at home. Fired. They would have been fired. Fired. <laughs> but a woman actually said that. I don't, you know, I got to. Because what it was, she had a shitty husband at home. That's what it was. She had some yeah. husband, some trophy husband. Well, not trophy husband. Some husband who had money who she wasn't attracted to. But that's a whole other story. Um, uh, yeah. So... Never, I tell people this, and well, people do believe me. I was in the military, you know, and, and did basic training and, and, and AIT, train the, you know, uh, job training. All that time, talking four months, five months. Yelled at, told to roll on the dirt, this and that. Did it, never cried. That nursing job, I wouldn't show anger or anything on the floor but when I would go home, a lot of nights I would cry because these people were so mean and overbearing to me that it was over apparent that they were trying to get me to snap so they could say, oh, he went off on me. He's not, he can't take it. So no matter what they did to me, I had to take it and, you know, swallow it and then just get through my day and go home, you know. So luckily... Going back to my grandfather, he taught me because imagine what he went through. That's what I said. This is 1998 when I'm going through this. My grandfather went as the first black cop in in the 40s. Yeah. Oh, my God. So you can imagine my grandfather was not allowed to arrest white people. He's a cop, but, you know, uh, whatever, law enforcement was not allowed to arrest white people. Still had to pee outside and back of restaurants because this is when, you know, black people can't. If you go to a restaurant. Even with a badge and uniform. Badge and uniform. He's told, go take a piss out back. Wasn't allowed to eat at counters. Only black only. You know, all that stuff that they did back then. He's a cop. And it's it's amazing. It's amazing how much adversity you both went have gone through. Yeah, he went through it worse. I mean, it's one of those, they just outright called him nigger in his face and spit on him. Imagine he's a cop and getting spit on. They couldn't do that to me, but yeah, they were tough on me. But it's still, it still didn't want you because of factors that you have no control over. Factors that shouldn't even be a factor. Right. And still have the audacity, you and your grandfather, to be like, no, I'm going to stick it through. Because this means much more than what these people want. We had to do. It's one of those. If I didn't make it through that unit, which is different, you know, they could say back in the day, like with my grandfather. If my grandfather didn't make it, see, black people can't. You know, they can't become cops because look, they can't handle pressure and they can't handle adversity. It's just like the movie, one of my favorite movies of all time, the Tuskegee Airmen. If you've ever seen, yeah, it's a good one. So Lawrence Fishburne, yes, was young. That version, yes. If you look at that movie, the hell they went through and um. Oh, what's my man? He's the he's one of my favorite actors. He I, was trying to. He was the lead guy. I don't think was Denzel in that one. Denzel wasn't no. in that one. No, um, Cuba Gooding Jr. was. Cuba. But the yeah. guy, the guy, the leading guy, ah, uh, he was on uh, Third Rock from the Sun. The leading, the leading actor on that. Lithgow, John Jonathan Lithgow. Mm-hmm. He was the main guy in that movie. That you know, trying to find all these facts. Black people can't take, you know, being at high altitudes and black people can't handle this. And he was the leading one, you know, trying to make sure 
people, you know, black people couldn't fly in these planes. And they made him like take these placement tests over again. And all these guys scored in the 90s to start with. And he's like, I don't believe it. Make them take the test again. And then they all turn around and score in the high 90s again. And everything's fucking racially motivated. It's not, we don't like these people because of their personalities. It's because of what they think black people can't do. And it's like, what else do we have to do? These people are getting hundreds on these tests. They're doing everything they're supposed to say. So whenever they did snap, getting pushed twice as harder than, say, the white cadets, then they can go, oh, see, look at that. He he can't handle this. Oh, my God. You know, but if you did that to these white guys, they would whine and complain and do the same thing, you know? Mm-hmm. So luckily my grandfather you gotta talk you gotta think about it. my grandfather taught me all this stuff he didn't really teach me it was just a matter of he used to just tell me these stories so it wasn't like hey grandson you know the white man's gonna do this and this and that he would just tell me stories about his life and I would just soak it in like a sponge and I would I was young enough I'm talking six seven years old to go wow granddaddy you went through that like you were really strong you know what I'm saying? So the way he taught me that stuff, I guess he was doing it in a backhanded way to be prepared for life. So that always resonated with me, whereas, like I said, this is 1998 when I started in this uh, uh, nursing unit. And, um, you know, things were different. You know, they couldn't call me nigger. They couldn't spit on me. They couldn't, But they could do everything up to a line to get me you know, kicked out of that unit or whatever, frustrate me. And um, I give you an example. So <clears throat> this one nurse, she's trying to show me how to draw up a medicine, a med, right? I got the syringe. She's like, every time she would try to show me meds, save me, you walk over and I go, hey, Ori, okay, I need you to draw up this med. Let me take your pen. This is your med. Okay, I need you to pull it up to this amount, you know, to this line. And uh, then we're going to give that to the baby. And I want to look at it, you know, see if it's 0.3. And you're over there pulling it up and, and you know, you tap it. And say, oh, yeah, look. Yeah, there's your 0.3. That's how I would see a normal uh, transition or whatever preceptor with, say, the women. Right. Now, the sisters, you know what I mean by sisters, the two black girls would kind of catch it too, but not like I did. Now, whenever I had to draw from it, all right, Greg, here's your syringe. I need to draw point three. Come on. And they'd start. This chick would tap on the table. And she would not stop. I don't know if this is too bad on your thing, but... Uh, That's good, yeah. You can imagine somebody... Just trying to get on your nerve, man. Right. And she would constantly tap. Hurry up. You're not moving fast enough. Hurry up. Hurry up. We'd have two or three of them to draw up, and I'm new. And if you look at a line on a... On a... A 1cc syringe is very small. You know, so you, when you pull up the amount for a baby you can imagine a premature baby you're only gonna give them so much and you have to be precise right you know and um you have to squeeze out air bubbles and stuff like that and the chick would rush me and i would take it and just tune her out and one day i'm doing it and i go you know i make a mistake right pulling it up and i had uh, i pushed too much out so i had to like pull so much up you know like you do that like if you you know you're washing dishes and you spill detergent on you know the floor or something you go oh man I made a mistake you know so she didn't say anything about it about a couple days later my manager calls me in the office and she's like Greg have a seat and the preceptor is sitting down in a couch or whatever in my manager's office she's not looking at me she's kind of looking at her nails off to the distance you know just kind of smug right 
<laughs> this is a classic film villain right here. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. So I walk in and my manager's like, girl, have a seat. Uh, I hear you're having some discipline problems on the floor. I'm like, what, what are you talking about? Um, she's like, well, I heard that your preceptor's showing you how to draw up a mint and you caught an attitude with her and you went, and this is, this is a true story. That's what my manager said. The, the sucking of teeth. Yes. Okay. Your manager said you, I mean, your preceptor said you went, and I s- explained to her why I did that. And she was kind of like, well, you know, just try not to do it again, you know, because uh, it seems disrespectful. But I said, I was doing it out of frustration for what I'm doing, not what she's doing. And I told my manager, I pretty much tuned her out to how she yells at me and stuff like that. My manager's like, well, you know, she's just trying to make you better and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, yeah. So it wasn't like I got ridden up or anything like that, but it was very trivial to... Right. To her. So that was indicative of how they were trying to get me, you know, kicked off the unit. Anything they could come up with. So that's why I translate to, and I guess I don't know which way you go politically, but you can imagine, I look at what President Obama has gone through. He's almost out of there. You know, you already hear about them saying, oh, we want him to fail and, you know, all this stuff even before he got in the White House. You know, it's a it's a White House, not a black house and all this shit. And it's like the most that, that was the most intelligent, reasonable, you know, and of course, he's got whatever which way he's going with things in life and this and that. But um, for a guy, we couldn't have had a more perfect black man in office to be the leader of the free world. Right. No scandals after all these years. Yeah. Wife, kids. His kids are great, you know, doing whatever. His wife has never been involved in anything. She's all, all she's worried about is kids and people getting healthy. And for Congress to say, well, we want him to fail. We want all his policies to fail. So his legacy is that he's a terrible president. And to, for them to fight him all this time and he still gets shit done. You know, it's like, of course, I'm, I'm a million miles away from Barack in that respect. But. You know, you can imagine what he went through and what I went through, all because of the color of my skin. You know, what other you, whatever reason could they use for Barack to hate him so much? Because you would think if he was a white guy who was a law, Harvard law professor, and a lawyer and all that stuff he's ever done, he's got a clean cut family, wife and stuff like that, and no scandals, they'd be like, oh my God, this is the greatest president ever. He's, you know, no sex scandals, no drugs, you know. None of that shit. Um, so you got to look at what is it? What is it? But today they can't say, oh, it's not because he's black. They got to think of all this other shit yeah. that they make up. So for, you know, what I went through on that unit. Um, and you got through. Of course. So it was a 16-week total orientation. When I got through, even though I did well, they said, well, you didn't do well. We want you to do another eight weeks. Oh, shit. So, they're like, if you don't do well in these eight weeks, then we're kicking you off the floor. Which was like death to me, because I didn't want to work anywhere but Nikki. They were going to kick me up to peds or maybe to an adult floor, which I would have, I would probably wouldn't be a nurse today if I had to do that. So, I went another eight weeks, <clears throat> and they made it harder because they would give me a, unreasonable assignments they would normally not give anybody. Yeah, like, per case an example is, I'd have four kids, and some babies had Ostomies, you know, like you see somebody with a ostomy bag, mm-hmm. you know, a shit bag. Shit bag. Yeah. So we had babies that, had, you know, they needed, you know, some kind of intestinal surgery, and they'd have these bags. Well, 
when an adult, they're not like you know, they're less likely to like knock it off or just you know, like a baby, he's uncontrollable. He's knocking these bags off and moving. These babies would knock these bags off all the time, and every time you 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 know, you're every couple hours having to put a new bag on. Well, they gave me an assignment one time where I had two babies with ostomy, and I had two other babies I had to take care of. That's an impossible assignment for one person, and um. You know, to do that, and then I have to get somebody to help me because you got to hold the baby down because no baby's just going to lay still, you know, no little right. couple months old baby, you know, because he's going to have his hands swatting there. And they would give me attitude. And I just can't believe you're moving so slow, you know, blah, blah, blah. Why are these other kids not fed? And it's like, well, you know, that's, that's in my mind, I'm like, well, this is medicine. This is not, not, no, there's no exact science. You can't say, okay, I'm going to, you know, I don't know, like, build this whatever this car in 5.2 seconds you know whatever you know um it's not precise like that in medicine things drag out you know in the medical field so um it's enough to where i made it through and they ended up giving me my own assignment you know or where i was on my own i didn't have anybody hovering over me and that was like freedom you know um but then i still caught hell to where like um Nurses wouldn't trust me to say watch the babies, or if they needed IVs put in a baby, they wouldn't. They wouldn't let me put IVs in their babies, even though I got real good. So what a nurse did was one night, they were trying to stick this baby right for an IV, trying to put, um, like five people had tried right a couple times each to put IV in the baby, and they kept failing. They go on break. They're like, they're like, we're gonna let the baby rest. This nurse that was left in the room with me said, Greg, come here, come here, come here. I want you to put an IV in that baby. And I said, that's such and such baby. She's going to be pissed off. And she's like, no, just do it. I put the IV in after one try. Got it successfully. And when they came back from lunch, you know, two or three nurses there, and the nurse is standing there with the baby wrapping it up. She's like, what's, what's going on? Well, the IV's in. And the nurses are all like, oh, my God, that's so good. Thank you. Saying it to the lady who's white. They're all white. And then, she let him celebrate and thank her. And then she said, oh, no, no, no. Greg got the IV in. All their demeanors changed. <laughs> oh, no. Nobody said thank you. That's fucked up. <laughs> and they just went on back to work. So I ended up staying on this unit for four years. And going back to what I said earlier, you might not like me, but you're going to have to respect me, right? So I stuck it out. You know, did a pretty good job at nursing. And then I decided, you know, I want to move to Atlanta just to, you know, see see new, whatever, new aspects of life, nursing life. And, um, yeah, check out new waters. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I told my manager I was, you know, leaving. And, um, you know, by this time I became, you know, I guess one of the shining nurses on the unit. So normally when a nurse would leave, they would, um, <clears throat> In the small break room, bring in cake, ice cream, a little card. Hey, you know, take care, you know, when a nurse left. And we had a conference room, big old conference room next to the break room um, that we did our training in. So that held like, you know, 40 people or something, maybe more. Well, my last day at work, coming to work, there's no cake or nothing in the... Because you kind of see the stuff when the nurses come in. Because when, oh, when we come in for our shift, everybody's kind of bringing stuff. They're not really hiding it. They're like, oh, we got your cake and ice cream. What are you to do tonight? And I didn't see any of that. No cake, no ice cream. Nobody had things in their hands. And I was like, and by this time, I'm cool with everybody on the unit. Like, people had to 
it was one of those I had, I was I became undeniable and people just gave in like you could almost see the tide turn. It was like fuck it, we just you know we like this guy. Now. <laughs> he ain't going nowhere, <laughs> right? We we can't you know and so yeah, I got to where it's funny. The same nurses that gave me shit ended up becoming some of my best friends where they would tell me personal shit and they would call me at home and we'd hang out. It's so funny how they just turned like that once they got to know me. Right. Cause, but that, but cause, that's cause the problem. They, they got to know you for but, who you are. Right. But that's the problem. When I came in the unit, I don't judge you because you're your white. You know what I'm saying? Because right. I don't know you. I come in and, hey, how you doing? I'm going to give you a chance. So, um... So what, what happened was one of the nurses, she called me to the side. She's like, Greg, I really want to talk to you. This is one of my good friends. She's like, I want to talk to you. I know you're leaving. Come on. I'm, I'm going to conference room. All right. I want to talk. We got privacy in there. And I walk in the conference room and the lights come on. Surprise. There are probably 60 people in there. Day shift people who off. My managers, doctors, they brought their family members uh, they had the room decked out, decorated, catered food, the whole works to where, um, you know, they had never did anything like that for people. And they had like all these big gifts wrapped up. They know I love jazz. So I got like this huge jazz painting, this big clock. I got this big jazz man that dances. I got like 10 gifts. Like, you know, we're not talking cheap shit, you know? Yeah. And, um, you know, a card full of money. And I really think that was a, a we're sorry for how we treated you party. Kids. Sorry, I'm crying a bit. <laughs> sorry, man. It may, it, you know, when I talk about it, it's funny. I almost teared up myself. Dude, it's, it's but it, it's more, I mean, you're, you're interpreting, uh, I don't know. It's amazing because they know the hardship that you had to go through. Mm-hmm. And for them to acknowledge and say he's leaving mm-hmm. and and really look back at how important you were mm-hmm. to to their establishment mm-hmm. I, don't, I think that's in some way fucking beautiful what they do as as fucked up shit they did to you yeah giving you a send off like that kind of comes full circle a bit it did it did and and a lot of those people you know I'm still cool with today you know like through Facebook we keep up with each other um <laughs> And, and people that were there that there were uh, um, that sorry, weren't. Sorry, I don't mean to oh, cry in front of you. Man, hey, what, you know what? That's that's natural, dude. I cried. No, that's not. I'm the last person gonna worry about that. <laughs> um, and there are people who watched it, who knew they were doing wrong. But they didn't want to go against their friends to be out, you know, to be made outcast that that were really apologizing after the fact like Greg we saw what you were going through and you know to this day people are like yeah Greg caught hell on this unit you know uh, people that weren't in that little you know those little cliques that were trying to trying to get me you know out of there um, so yeah that was the reward I mean I, I cried too that day like when they had the party and to see Cause that's that was unprecedented. They usually whoever's working at night is gonna send you off with the cake and ice cream. But for day shift, night shift, uh, and them to bring their kids and you know husbands or people I've met and and the doctors there and my manager and and this room is packed. It's like a freaking like a real party, like a you know party that should be away from the hospital. 
for them to do that, you know, let me know that um, I had earned their respect. And I guess they liked me along the way. You know what I'm saying? Uh, so, I don't know. It's just, it's tough to... I guess that's just a philosophy I have in life. That I'm going to be undeniable. You're not going to... if you Just because you don't like me, you're not going to stop me from what I want to do. You know? Uh, same way I look at comedy. You're not going to stop me from what I want to do. You know? Yeah. Okay. First thing that comes up to my, my mind now is... Because by then, you move on to Atlanta. At some point, you come back here to California. Or not come back, but you, you come to California for work, yeah. I assume. Yeah, I lived 10 years in Atlanta. I worked in, I worked in a hospital there the whole 10 years. And then on the side, I worked at other hospitals. I wanted to, like, so just build experience. Did you start comedy in Atlanta or here? In Atlanta. So you're talking uh, 2007. So what mode Because it doesn't seem like, like performing was ever part of your early 20s Mm-mm. or mid-30s. You know, so I, what happened? I love comedy. It was one of those me and my best friend from when we were kids. We loved Richard Pryor, and you know, we used to laugh. The whole thing, you like, you know, you get your mom's records and you laugh when they're not at home, and you know, because there's cursing and all that. And um, I love comedy so much. And going to shows in Atlanta, and around yeah, age 35, 36, I felt this need to be creative. Hmm. Right, I had this bug, so I took a Spanish class. That didn't satisfy it. I did like Spanish one and the instructor would always get mad at me because excuse me this is this is basic Spanish right you're supposed to not know shit but everybody came in and kind of knew a little bit and this and that but he would give me hell excuse me because I couldn't roll my R's and all that shit and Spanish one dude I'm not supposed to know anything help me and um so I dropped out of that I picked up the guitar for a little bit started taking guitar lessons that didn't do it mm-hmm. And then, uh, hey man, I can't believe you. Jazz guitar, did you try to do jazz guitar? I stopped. I did acoustic, acoustic, acoustic. So I, I still doubt. I have it. It's funny. I'm like, it's in my garage, it's in my uh, storage. But, um, I played, I played the drums, but I've always played them my whole life. My dad always kept a set in his basement. But, um, then a comedy club, this, I saw this advertisement for this comedy club in Atlanta. It was called the Laugh, uh, the Funny Farm. Sorry. That you probably heard of the, the comedy club, The Laughing Skull. That's a pretty popular club. What's well, it is a pretty popular club across the country. They win awards and stuff like that. Well, the owner of The Laughing Skull, he his first club was called The Funny Farm, and they had a comedy class. You know, like every there are a lot of clubs that have comedy classes, and it was one of those you want to be funny, try this out, blah blah blah. And the light bulb went off. You know. Uh, Cause I didn't think of just going to open mics and just jumping on like that. So I figured, let me go to this comedy class. And they, you know, they stressed, can't, we can't make you funny by the end of this four weeks, but we can teach you the tools to, you know, go out there. <laughs> At least they're honest about it. Oh, they were honest. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'd rather, it, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have it any other way. <laughs> can't, I mean, how you can't, oh, we're going to make you funny after four weeks. No, no, no. And I'm the last dude, like, only when I'm with my close friends am I the laughy, jokey guy. When I'm around new people, that's how, that's part of my introversion. When I'm around new people or at work, it's only select people now that I'm, I clown with and joke with. And that's because that's probably part of my defense mechanism for what I've been through in life, you know? Right. 
with the story I just told you, even with nursing. I can't blame you, man. Uh, it does. It makes me leery of people to where I have to trust you before I open up like that, right? So when people, when I end up trusting people and I can laugh and joke around, they're like, man, we didn't think you that way because you're all quiet in your corners. Like, that's a part of me I don't want to give to everybody. Why should I laugh and joke with you when you're trying to stab me in the back? Right. I hear yeah. So, and that's how I became in my first hospital. You know, once I became cool with everybody, they were laughing and joking and all that. Um, so I took the comedy class. It was like you went every Monday for a month for three hours. And uh, I was ma- I was married again at that time. I remember I signed up for the class. It was 300 bucks. And I come home with this book. And they got this book that, you know, it's like this is how you kind of put a joke together that, you know, the instructor had. And I came home to my wife. And then I'm divorced from her, too. Um, I came home to her and I was like, hey, honey. Uh, I think I'm gonna try comedy. Uh, I want to take this comedy class and go from there. And she looked at me. And she said, "Okay." It wasn't like, but she was like, "But you're not the funny. You're not the funny, haha, jokey guy with everybody." Same thing. Like I could do it with her, but around certain people, you know, I'd be the quiet, you know, on the corner guy. But um, you know, took the class and instructor Big Kenny, who's one of my mentors to this day. Um, he, uh, you know, taught us how to be a professional. That's how you grab the microphone, you get on stage, move the microphone stand to the side, use your voice, be professional. Everything about him was being professional. And then that's when he taught us, when we started writing jokes, <laughs> you know, used to write these paragraphs and you'd be up there talking for an hour with one joke and he'd be like, nah, cut that shit down. Cut, you know, less less wordy. And, and, and then that's when he told me, dude, with you being a nurse, use that. You know what I'm saying? Use that. That's a whole different avenue than us talking about jacking off and smoking weed. Nobody can touch that area because it's not personal to him, you know? And so, there was what, 10, 10 of us in that class? And by the time the class was over, our graduation day, I remember, which was graduation was we had a, a show. Right, you had a show, bring out your family and friends, and about 80 people in the crowd, which is not bad, you know? And uh, I remember we were sitting down before the show, and we're all nervous and all that, and he said, all right, y'all, you know, just keep it loose. And he said, all right. Uh, he said, how many of y'all wanna do this, wanna pursue comedy after this is over? And I raised my hand immediately. Like, no hesitation, like, me? I threw my hand up and you saw a couple people kind of slowly uh, you know they looked at each other you saw two people kind of slowly raising their hands and the rest didn't raise their hands but I was the only one that threw my hand on Greg they said See, you got the bug they said Greg's gonna make it yeah because he knows he knows right away that he wants to do this it's a calling like nursing it's a calling yeah and I didn't see it that way at the time because I thought um I'll just make it a hobby to where I'll just go do mics just to be in the clubs and to, you know, say I'm trying it, you know, to be a cool thing. But what happened is I started going to mics. Yeah, that bug hit me and, you know, all that failing, you know, crickets on stage motivated me to to get better. Because it's funny, that first comedy class, I still got that tape to this day. They taped, they filmed it. So I got my first ever stand-up on tape. It's in my storage. And uh, it wasn't bad, actually, because I talked about nursing. It wasn't, you know, wasn't going to get an Emmy for it. I wasn't going to, you know, whatever. 
get five stars, but it was enough to where when I showed people, they would laugh. And there was some, you know, bad parts in it. It's funny. I, I want to find, I, I want to get it and look at it again. But, um, well, that's my next question was going to be was how, how is the creative process and, and doing stand up when you first started and how is it now and how's it differ? Well, um, it was just a matter of just like, I don't know. It sounds so basic, but if I'm taking, writing a joke and I'm going left with it and it's not working. Okay. Let me scratch it out. Let me go this way. And you start building up bit by bit and you see what makes a crowd laugh and you start, for me, I envision, okay, what would make these people laugh that is about me? You know, what part of myself can I show in, in this joke that will make people laugh and go, oh yeah, haha, that's it, how it is. So yeah, it was rough years in the beginning, like, you know, just crickets and people not laugh, you know, at times not laughing. And, um, but I would get with cats that, were passionate about you know getting better and we're you know a lot of these cats they're out here in LA now and they're doing well these guys that I moved out here behind kind of you know um so that was kind of my thing I was just I don't know I guess already obsessed obsessed about getting better and so um you know it's just the old cliche write write continue to write and then I had an article done in the Atlanta Journal Constitution, the number one paper in the city, on me being a nurse and a comedian, right? They did this article on me. And all of a sudden, all these uh, nursing conferences and these medical organizations called me and said, hey, you know, we thought it'd be cool to bring you out to our conference, and while lunch is going on, have you entertain the people. This is a year in. It's good side money, too great side money but yeah. I only had a year in so <laughs> you're talking 10 raggedy minutes at that yeah, yeah so I had to and they're like well can you do 30 to 45 uh yeah how much you paying me for 500 bucks and put me up in the nice hotel uh yeah yeah so you talking that's an hour of whatever 30 45 minutes of crowd work and stories which I could go all day on with nurses you know I could tell funny stories. Hey, Mr. Johnson fell down and his dick came out. You know, it stretched the story out. I learned quickly. I, I even thought of the idea of bringing people up and letting them tell a joke. Interesting. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I learned on the fly how to do it and, and won these crowds over. Bring somebody up and do a joke. Have people, because some people always got some kind of story, you know, that they want to tell. Just like, clubs now people always want to tell a story so i made it work in those conferences and um i always came professionally dressed so it wasn't like i just showed up in t-shirt and jeans always always like in a suit you know dressed up uh for these conference you know these corporate events so that helped out because i always i've always been a clean cut guy you know from when i was a kid you know always shaved and yeah whatever so you know appearance was everything especially with, with these groups and um uh, yeah, I did that for some years in, in Atlanta. And then everybody started drying up. They were like, oh, we can't fit it in the budget. And I wasn't even that great, you know, then. But one time I even had, somehow I worked it in. I swear to God, I wish I had filmed this. And at this nursing conference, 100 women in this group. And I said, you know what, I'm going to do something different. And I uh, started talking about music. And I was like, how many people love Queen? Said, ah, yeah. And I said, how about the song, We Will Rock You? Yeah, yeah. And I used, I told a story when we used to ride on the bus when I was a kid in the late 70s. We, we were Rocky who came out. You know, it's with the stomping. The... 
And we used to do that on the bus riding home. White, black, whatever. We used to be on the bus riding home, just right, stomping our feet, clapping. I made that organization. I made everybody in there do that. And I did two verses to We Were Rocky. Oh, man. Right. How many people? Like about 100. 100, 100, 100 people. women. You're talking soccer moms. You're talking. All in on it. All in on it. I said, I, I was, and it's funny, when we first started, I knew they were going to be embarrassed. So you see when people start stomping, they would kind of look around, right? And I was like, wow, look at me. Look at me. Come on, let's go. Pick it up. And I made, I waited till the whole room was in on it. Everybody was stomping and clapping. Because if I saw somebody, hey, you, you, to where they loosened up. They weren't embarrassed. And... This is in a hotel, so, you know, it's like there's a ballroom or whatever, conference room where we're at, and there's other ones, right? So by the time I got them going and the doors open, you saw people coming to the doors looking in, and here's all these women. I would sing the verse, and the women would do the chorus. Right. So I'd be like, say whatever. Buddy, you're a young boy. Right, and then at the end, they'd be like, and I'd be like, hit it, girls. We will, we will. And they were doing that. And I had them going for like two verses on that. By the end, they're all clapping. Hey, yay, yay, yay. You know. Um, you made it quite an experience for them. Yeah, just to do something different. And I was trying to stretch time out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was man. trying to stretch time out. But uh, that's. Uh, hey, yeah. that's the beauty of it. Hey, you get, get improvised. It and, worked. And, and magic comes out I of it, you know? I got my check and. Uh, some of these people still follow me to this day, but yeah, that's what I did. All right, Greg, we, we far surpassed the one hour mark. Okay. Um, which, which it's all good with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we start closing up shop here. Okay. If you want to learn more about you or about your next up shows, where can I check it out? Stay away. Look on my Facebook. So you can look at, um, the number two tall RN. So the number two, T is in Tom, A-L-L-R-N, because I'm, people call me too tall RN at my first job because I'm 6'4". So that's what they used to call me, too tall RN. So I thought that's, you know, I just use that for life. So they can look me up there on Facebook. They can look at my website, which is also, it's www.thenumber2tallrn.com. It's my website. And then same thing for Instagram and Twitter, the number 2, T-A-L-L-R-N. And you also uh, produce shows here at Sounds of Improv. Yeah, I, I came Nurses up with Night com, Out. Yeah, I came up with a concept around because Nurses Week is every year from May six uh, to May twelfth. So that's when they celebrate because nursing was invented by Florence Nightingale, supposedly May six of whenever. So they do nurses. It's nurse called Nurses Week, and I thought of a good idea. Hey, let's get people out to shows when they have a nursing theme with me on the shows in some capacity. I thought it would be a good way to bring in a different crowd and I ended up doing eight shows eight nurses eight, yeah eight of them and uh, the biggest crowd I had was like 300 people oh it's close to selling out the place the, the, yeah because that place holds 450 which was uh, so the least amount I had was you talking 150 my first show on a Tuesday night wow Tuesday night one first show and they made me charge 10 bucks a hit they were like no no paper no free tickets 10 bucks a hit I need 150 people because they were trying to test me out and I did on a Tuesday night bringing 150 people to that club you know 
which I was sweating bullets because they were going to like cancel because I had like maybe 80 pre-sales and, and went from there. Um, so yeah, I did that just periodically just to, just to produce my own show and just to try to bring in. There's funny, a lot of nurses who'd never been to a comedy show. Yeah. That now are, you know, addicted to it, you know. Greg, mm-hmm. thank you for coming. Oh, thank you, man. Uh, it's awesome. I I feel there's a lot to learn from you. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I just try to... Well, I did. I certainly can. did. I got emotional. <laughs> I, think, yeah. I think you're one of the few guests here that got me emotional. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, thank you for coming. Uh, we're good? We're good. All right.